Well, good morning again. Let's stand together. And if you're visiting with us, we are in a summer series called Suggestions for a Successful Summer. This is uh, suggestion number three, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the text that we're going to use is from the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, for just two verses. That means we're going to read two slides. I'm going to read yellow, you're going to read white, and this is what it says. I have the remote. It's not going to do anything unless I move it. This is what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Father, we love you, praise you, and thank you for your word. Give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and particularly, and most importantly, as we leave this place, this property, and go out into our homes and our neighborhoods and our places of work and places where we recreate and all those things, Lord, that we would have, by the power of the Spirit, the ability to live out what it means to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, what it means to be people who are disciples. And we give you praise and give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, this week's suggestion for a successful summer is around soul success or if you will, tending to the soil of our souls. And so we're focusing on spiritual vitality, how to maintain that, and spiritual life and strength. And so tending to the soil of our souls requires that we do some digging. Now, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the first thing we're told here, that when it comes to our spiritual life and vitality, that we are not alone. We are told that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. In other words, that we are not saved to ourselves that we are in a community, we are a community with the people of God. Now, that applies not only to our time and our space. We understand that we're not the only Christians in Sudbury. We're not the only Christians in Ontario. We're not the only Christians in Canada. We're not the only Christians around the world. But it also implies that we are also surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us and who have died and who will come behind us. Now, I hear people ask, do you think my, my relatives, my loved ones, can actually look down and see what's going on on earth? I have no idea. Nobody knows. I don't think so. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. But the most important one is that if you're in heaven, you're not interested in what's going on on earth. You're interested in what's going on in heaven. And the key attraction is none other than Jesus Christ himself. 
And so we are saved not to ourselves. And so in the spirit, those who have come behind, those who have come before us and those who will come behind us, we are connected to them through the work of the spirit. And not only are we surrounded and in community, but we do not do spiritual life by ourselves alone. Now, some of us might bristle at what I'm going to say, so just sort of put your seatbelt on and hold steady. One of the mistakes that we make about summer is this, that summer is a time to skip church. Now, there's a difference between missing church and skipping church. Missing church is consequential. It is In some ways, it happens because of circumstances, what we might call mitigating circumstances. I think we all know that there are weekends away, and we all know that there's travel when it comes to summer vacations and all of those things. That's missing church. But skipping church is, we think, that church attendance in the summer is an option. We got other things to do or better things to do, so we're just going to blow off church this year or this summer or this week or this month, and we just sort of skip church. Now, it's skipping church and being away from fellow believers over the summer is one of the reasons why when we come to September, we sort of feel out of sorts spiritually. We sort of feel like we're disconnected. And we become spiritually or are spiritually depleted. And the point is that being with other believers during the summer months is as crucial as any other time of the year. And I think we all know the quintessential text from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider, the writer says, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, even then, but encouraging one another and all the more so as you see the day drawing near. Now, so we are saved not to ourselves, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and that we are not designed to do spiritual life alone. But the opposite is also true is that spiritual vitality also involves time alone. We have to hold those two concepts in tension with each other. And so we understand that spirituality is done together as the body of Christ and as believers, but also there's an element of spiritual life and vitality that is done alone. Now, one of the signs of summer is growing things. Things grow. Farmers' fields, orchards, home gardens, flowers. Agriculture and gardening is a metaphor. It's a picture. It's an image. It's an illustration, an example for spiritual life and growth. So how do we, how do you and I cultivate our souls during the summer months? How can we spiritually grow? How can spiritual growth be a summertime activity? Well, first of all, by tending to the soil of our souls. And in order to do that, 
Some things have to go. Some things have to be dug up and dug out. Some things need to be cut away. There needs to be some pruning. And the picture, of course, is an overgrown garden or an overgrown field or an overgrown pathway, brush needing to be cleared away from the ground of our lives, you and me. Now, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Let us lay aside every weight. The NIV says, let us throw off everything that hinders. Now, most of us know what that means. It means to get rid of the unnecessary weight, the baggage, anything that bogs us down, anything that distracts us, leave that leaves us unfocused. It's the idea of an unencumbered athlete. Anything or whatever it is that impedes our movement, that reduces our effectiveness. But our metaphor today is not running. Our metaphor, our example today is the metaphor of soil. And so tending to the soil of our souls means clearing the clutter from our lives. In order to maintain our spiritual vitality, we have to rid our, rid our lives of some clutter. First of all, what I refer to as everyday clutter, time the thing that all of us wish we had more of. And of course, Ephesians tells us these words, that when we talk about everyday clutter, Ephesians talks about it in this way, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil, how we spend our time. And if we don't pay attention to our time, we are going to eventually run out of summer, and we're going to look back and say, where did the summer go? Do you realize that today is the 22nd of July? That means that already we are into the first week of the second half of summer, and it is slipping away from us. And this kind of clutter that sort of distracts us, that takes our time, can steal from us. And then there's what I call electronic clutter. Cell phones and emails and texts and all of those things that take our attention. How many of you have an iPhone? Raise it up. If you Raise your hand or your phone if you've got an iPhone. How many of you have a cell phone other than an iPhone? Okay, now, I want you to take it out for a minute. I want you to turn it on. Vibrate. Now, I don't know if Samsung or whatever kind of Android device you've got or not, but on our phones, on, a, on an iPhone, there is, um, when you get an email, when you get a voicemail, or when you get an update notice, you get a little red dot. Little red dots make me crazy. <laughs> I got to get rid of the dot. Some of you think, wow, he's really fast at getting back to uh, text or uh, email. No, not at all. I, I don't care. I just want to get rid of the dot. <laughs> it just drives me crazy. 
when I've got this dot, and I've got one right now. It says here that I have seven unread texts. Do you mind if I take a moment? <laughs> They're all from Scott. <laughs> I still have another one. Go away from me. Electronic clutter. And then there is a tough one. Emotional and relational clutter. This has to do with issues of the heart. Relational issues. This is unresolved relational conflict between you and your spouse, between you and your children, your spouse and your children, your children and children, you and your friends. This is what we could call emotional IOUs, those things that are, have never been talked about. They've just been swept under the carpet. But they're outstanding. They're unresolved. And it creates emotional baggage. It creates, creates emotional clutter. And then there is, of course, eternal clutter. Now, eternal clutter is what the writer of Hebrews refers to as the sin which clings so closely. Few things negatively impact the vitality of our spiritual life other than sin. The NIV says the sin that so easily entangles. And, and what's interesting about all of them is this. The eternal clutter, the sin that so easily entangles, is one of the easiest thing cluttered to deal with. It's one of the easiest. Confession, repentance, forgiveness. Right now, in this room, at this very moment, or if you're watching online, and all of a sudden the come, has come to your mind a sin, something you've done, something you've said, something you've thought, or something else, Right now, all you have to do is stop for a moment for station identification and say, Lord, I confess to you my whatever it is. I'm sorry for it. I repent. I ask for your forgiveness, and I receive it. And because you forgive me, I choose to forgive myself. That's it. That's it. If you went through that process, it took, you, took us what? Seven seconds. Eternal clutter, sin, is the easiest. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What would we describe as clutter in our lives that need to be cleared? What would you, what would I, what would you, what would we, what would we identify as clutter in our life right now that needs to be cleared? Is it everyday clutter? Is it electronic clutter? Is it emotional clutter? Is it eternal clutter? The sin? Spiritual vitality. Tending to the soil of our soul involves doing some digging. It involves doing some weeding, some cutting, some pruning, some clutter clearing. But tending to the soil of our, the soil of our soul also involves some planting. Now, I'm going to change the metaphor here. I'm going to mix up our metaphors today. And if we are going to do some planting in our lives, then we have to do some diving. Some diving. Now, 
The writer of the book of Hebrews challenges us to consider the race. The race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, there are other images, there are other metaphors, there are other pictures, there are other examples that are given to us to consider that represent the spiritual life in the Bible. Now, not everyone enjoys running. So thankfully, there are other metaphors that talk about the spiritual life. How many of you enjoy running? Raise your hand nice and high. How many of you do not enjoy running? Raise your hands. How many of you have ever, okay, of you that have your hands up, don't like running, raise them up, raise them up, raise them up nice and high. You don't like running. Of, of all, don't let you put your hand down yet. Pay attention to the instructions. Wow, it's our summer, summer, losing focus. How many of you that have your ra- hands raised, I want you to put them down. When I t- ask this next question, how many of you that have your r- hands raised who do not like running have ever tried it? Put your hands down. <laughs> you never know until you try, people. You never know. Now, there are other metaphors. For example, there is the metaphor of walking instead of running. Lots of people like walking. As a matter of fact, it comes from the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, I think Pastor Kevin a couple of weeks ago talked about this, where actually God came down, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, that God came down in the cool of the evening and walked in the garden. I wonder what that looked like. And then, of course, it says of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 that he walked with God. And then there's another image in the Bible that sort of is a metaphor of the spiritual life, and that is the the metaphor of flying or soaring, if you will. And this comes from Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse uh, 31, where it says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, back to our water metaphor. Diving in. Swimming is a summer metaphor that we are all familiar with. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, or sorry, not Ecclesiastes, of Ezekiel, in chapter 47, it talks about the vision of the prophet Ezekiel that he has of the throne of God, or rather the temple of God in heaven, and the river that runs from it, and this is what it says. It says, first of all, that he looked, and this river was not a river, it was just a trickle. 1,500 feet from that, it tells us that it was ankle deep, And then 1,500 feet further from that, it tells us that it was knee-deep. And then 1,500 feet from that, it tells us it was waist-deep. And then finally, Ezekiel says, 1,500 feet from that, it was too much of a river to cross. It was enough to swim in. And so I want us to think now for a few moments around this metaphor of swimming. Now, I have noticed over the years, that there are two ways to enter the water when you're swimming. The apprehensive way or the assertive way. 
Now, I want to describe them, and I want you to tell me after which group you are. The apprehensive way are those that come to the water. They approach the water sort of gingerly, anxiously, and they put their foot in, and they pull it back. And then they put their two feet in, and they... And then they get up to their knees. And after they've been there a week or so, (laughs) they move up to their waist. And after they've caught their breath, then finally they may crouch down into the water. And then there's the aggressive kind who just kind of jump in. Who just dive in. Right? Now, which one are you? How many of you are the apprehensive kind when it comes to the water? Raise your hand. Bless your souls. How many of you are the assertive kind where you just dive in or jump in? Raise your hand. Bless your souls. Now, here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. Whether you are apprehensive or whether you are assertive, When you get in the water, it's going to take your breath away. And the same is true with our spiritual lives. Whether you are ginger about it and and sort of reluctant about it, or you are aggressive and assertive about it, the reality is that it's going to take our breath away. That's just the way it is. But how do we get... How do we get beyond snorkeling and becoming scuba divers in our spiritual lives? How do we get beyond just snorkeling? You know, snorkeling, snorkeling is a pain in the neck. I've tried snorkeling. It's seriously overrated. That thing there, that pipe, whatever that thing is called. I mean, I get all kinds of water in there, and if it's salt water, man, I, I spend most of the time hacking up the, car, the water I just swallowed. And you know, they say you can see the bottom, yeah, like 500 feet away. It's binoculars you need, not goggles. But how do we get beyond snorkeling and become scuba divers? in our spiritual lives. Richard Foster, a bunch of years ago, said this. Spirituality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant gratification is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. So how do we deep dive into our spiritual lives. Well, thankfully, we have an example. And Jesus, as Dieter Zander says, Jesus is the dive master who teaches us how to go beyond the surface to experience the full reality of life in God's kingdom. So, I think that we have to be doing what Jesus said 
and what Jesus did. And the writer of the Hebrews puts it this way, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what did Jesus actually say? Well, in Luke, sorry, in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says to his disciples, John the Baptist has been killed, and Jesus says to his disciples, he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Now, that same invitation that was given to the first disciples is given to us, is given to me and you. Now, the NIV puts it this way. And he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Come with me. That's the first thing that Jesus says to us. Come with me by yourselves. Come with me. And really, the invitation is about coming to terms with our limitations. Coming to terms with that. And then, of course, the, the more famous and familiar invitation is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And most of us recognize this. Notice what Jesus says here. In Mark, he says, come with me. But here he says, come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Come with me, and come to me is an invitation for spiritual revitalization, and it can happen over the summer. Summer is a time of rest. It's a time to relax. It's a time to recreate, and it's a time to recreate. And Jesus invites us, and he gives us rest for our bodies, for our minds, and for our souls. Physically. Mark chapter 2, verse 23 says this, among other things. It says that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, that's got other implications and, and the context. You can look at that later. But keeping the Sabbath, Sabbath keep, keeping, and I'm not talking about one day. I'm not talking about a Saturday or a Sunday. I'm talking about a time where we regularly roll into our lives as a routine a time to be, to come with Jesus and to come to Jesus and to come apart from everything else. A summer Sabbath, if you will. But Sabbath keeping is about accepting. We said a moment ago that the invitation by Jesus is about recognizing our limitations. But Sabbath keeping is about accepting our limitations. The Bible tells us in Genesis, the first couple chapters, that on the seventh day after creation, God rested. Now, 
God did not rest on the seventh day after creation because he was tired, because if he's tired, he's just not God. You understand what I'm saying? The reason why God rested on the seventh day was to set a pattern, an example for you and I. That we all need rest, we all need reprieve, we all need restorative habits in our lives that replenish us. Someone said this, Israel kept the Sabbath, but the Sabbath also kept them. And summer Sabbath will keep us too if we keep it. Ladies and gentlemen, Summer Sabbath is about accepting our limitations. You and I, we are not bulletproof. We're not bulletproof. And physically, our bodies need Summer Sabbath. And then Jesus, of course, cares for us mentally. Sometimes what we need maybe more than anything else, is to be on the far side of the desert. Now, I didn't say the far side. Nobody got what I just meant by that. Good. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, it tells the story of Moses. And the story of Moses is that he's out with his flock on the far side of the desert. And in that place and in that time alone, God appears to Moses. And that's where we get the whole burning bush thing. But that's not our point this morning. Moses is alone on the far side of the desert and God comes to him. Silence and solitude brings us into deeper connection and communication with God. And mentally, our minds, your mind, my mind, requires silence and solitude. So here's one of the things that I do, and don't copy it, because if you do it, then I'm going to have to do something else. I love Lake Ramsey in the morning. So what I do and I did it this morning. I was down there this morning at 6.30. And um, I like to park there um, at the, which would be the north end of the parking area there, wherever that used to be a rowing club there. I don't even know what it's called. I pull in there. And I put my windows down, and I, and I just enjoy the quietness. There's a sign that says, turn off your engine. And I say, someone should put hallelujah at the end of that. So this morning I'm there, and I'm there about an hour, and I think this well-meaning person, I hope there's nobody in this room, rolled in around 7.30, and I'm just enjoying, I'm praying, I'm reading, I'm journaling, I'm just quiet and solitude. And some person pulls in a car, and they turn the car off, but all I can hear is Christian music blaring. And I think, bless their hearts, that they thought that maybe on Sunday morning everybody needs to hear their version of Amazing Grace. And I thought to myself, 
Boy, we are our own worst enemies at times. So stay away from Lake Ramsey. (laughs) But mentally, our minds require solitude and silence. And then spiritually. Somebody said this. We should only go as fast as our souls. Now, if you can figure out what that means, you can tell me. But it makes sense to me. But in order to go as fast or slow as our souls requires time. Do you know what the poetry principle is? Thanks. Anybody else know what the poetry principle is? Okay, now. Now, you may not like poetry. And you may not get it. And that's okay, because that's not our point. But here's the point of the poetry principle. Have you ever tried to speed read poetry? The reality is that it's an absurd question because poetry is not to be re- meant to be read with speed. Poetry is not to be read quickly. That's the poetry principle. It's an art. To enjoy poetry It has to be lingered over. To get poetry, it has to be pondered. It has to be mulled. It takes time. It's like good wine. I wouldn't know anything about that, but that's a whole other thing. And so it is with our souls. Matter of fact, Psalm 1 says this, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you know what meditate means? Meditate literally means to slowly chew. It means to marinate. You know when you marinate meat before you barbecue it or you put it in the oven? It means to suck on a lollipop. That's what it means. This is awful. (laughs) This is Jolly Rancher's Green Apple. Poetry principle of lingering, of meditating, of mulling takes on a little different meaning when you come to Isaiah chapter 31 verse 4 where it says this, as a a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. It's the idea of a dog chewing on a bone. Now, we have a miniature schnauzer that's about 9 or 10 years old, maybe, that needs therapy. And uh, we give her these rawhide bones, and you ought to see her with it. It's like a solitary pleasure. She licks it, and she chews it, and she turns it over, and she lingers over it, and she worries it. But she enjoys it. This is the idea of what it means to meditate. And Jesus says, he says, come to me. And before that, he says, come with me. And then further in in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, he says, come to me and learn of me or learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, easy, easy. And my burden is light. It's light, 
light. Come and learn from me. But it takes time, doesn't it? You see, spiritually, our souls need to slow down. And summer's good for that. Now, all of this is predicated on three things. It's based on three things. If you didn't get anything else, get this. First of all is this, that God is already present in our lives. God is already present in our lives. We don't have to go chasing after the presence of God. God is present in our lives. So when I rolled into Lake Ramsey this morning at 6.30, he's already there. He was in the car with me before I even left our condo. And when you are doing whatever it is that you do, God is present. Even in the mayhem of trying to camp with your family. He's present. That's the first thing we need to understand, that God is already present. The second thing is our consent, our acknowledgement of his presence. That's the beginning of the journey. God is present, but we must acknowledge, we must consent to his presence in our lives. He won't bully his way in. And the last thing is this, is the relational nature of our God. Did you hear the message in tongues this morning? That's a sign that God cares. That's a sign that God speaks. That's a sign that God is, has got his eye on the finest, smallest details of your life and my life. And he wants to talk with us. He wants to listen. He wants to hear our voices. He wants to speak to us. He wants to communicate to us. He wants us to feel his presence. So let me give you a few suggestions. You probably don't need them, but let me give you a few suggestions this morning that might help us have a successful summer as we sort of tend to the soil of our souls before the summer slips away. First of all, read a different version of the Bible than you normally do. Read a different version. Read a book on spiritual life. Read a book, anything by Eugene Peterson, Henry Nouwen, um, if you struggle with the image and, and who God is, read Brendan Manning's Abba's Child. It'll transform your life. And of course, Rod Koskid would want me to tell you to read anything by Dallas Willard. And then read some poetry. Maybe you've never read it before. Maybe it might be fun exercise. Listen to a different genre of music. If you're married, enjoy the quiet company of your spouse. And when your breath is taken away by a sunrise or a sunset or a still morning or a child playing or a boat on the water, let it. And when we're sitting in the backyard or on our balconies or on the dock or by the pool or by the lake, practice the presence of God. And practicing the presence of God is just simply this. In your heart and in your mind, you don't even have to say anything audibly. 
I will because you won't know what I'm saying. Thinking. God, I acknowledge you're here. God, I acknowledge your presence. Whether I'm sitting, standing, floating, fishing, driving, yelling at my kids, or my spouse. God, I acknowledge you're here. That's acknowledging and practicing the presence of God. It is the awareness, consciously aware that God is there. And I'll leave you with this. Allow yourself to feel his love, his grace, and his smile of approval. Did you hear it? Allow yourself to feel his love, his grace, and his smile of approval. Oh, I know, I know, I know. You don't deserve it. Of course you don't. Neither do I. Neither, none of us do. But allow yourself to feel his love. Allow yourself to feel his grace. And allow yourself to feel the smile of his approval. Father, you are good. You are good. You are good. Oh, so good. And Father, today, these people, listening online, these people in this room, us, Oh, that we would know and be baptized again, that our minds and hearts would be open to understand again how great is your love and how abundant is your grace. And it is wider and deeper than any of us ever imagined. And yes, we're not perfect. And yes, we're fallen. And yes, we don't deserve it. But your smile of approval rests upon your people. And we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.